0: All right, so my name is Colin Lamke, and I'll be introducing uh, Dr. Michael Gore today. And so, Dr. Gore uh, got his bachelor's and his master's uh, from Virginia Tech, and he received his PhD from Cornell. And uh, he's currently a a research geneticist for the USDA ARS um, and is an adjunct faculty member uh, with the University of Arizona uh, at Maricopa, Arizona. And so, his research interests uh, include um, complex trait dissection. Uh, of nutritional and stress-tolerant traits. And today, uh, he's going to be presenting on exploring the genetic architecture of traits in maize and cotton uh, with a next generation platform. So uh, please join me in welcoming uh, Dr. Gore. Thank you so much, Colin. Um, I just want to say that thank you for the opportunity to give a talk today and that the University of Nebraska has a fantastic group of graduate students. And I would like to pause and give them an applause for organizing everything right now. (laughs) So unlike Jody, um, I I felt inclined to put the word next generation in my title so that they would not retract my talk. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're wondering where the small town of Maricopa, Arizona is, which is what I was wondering before my job interview. It's about a half an hour south of Phoenix. So um, if you ever want to come there, it's a great time to visit. Just please don't come in July or August or you'll be cursing me. And this, I think, was one of the first times I've ever traveled from Phoenix to someplace else where I had gotten off the plane and it was actually hotter. So (laughs) that's a first for me and it's very strange and it kind of scares me, but Without further ado, where are we going with this today? So I'm. So, so the first thing that I'm going to talk about today is whole genome patterns of DNA variation in maize. Uh, so it's kind of broken up into three vignettes: uh, the genetic architecture of carotenoid seed traits in a maize NAM population, and our uh, attempt at field-based high throughput phenotyping of cotton. So just in this most simplistic form, which let's just concentrate on the genotype. And so, we say we have six inbred lines here, and say we have done resequencing of a candidate gene. So, we have six uh, different PCR amplicons that have an alignment here. And the most rudimentary variation that we can think of is single nucleotide polymorphism, SNP. And here we have an AG allele. Uh, so, if you think of maize, so just any two maize inbred lines, the, the the divergence between those maize lines can vary between 1% to 1.4%, which is pretty close to the same rate between human and chimpanzee. If, if Ed was up here, he would be showing a picture of a chimpanzee. So that, that is about 14 times higher than that of human beings. So maize has tremendous diversity. And it's, on average, like three to five times higher than most grasses out there. And I'm sorry, Steve, that also includes wheat. <laughs> So, now we want to think about the functional diversity in the maize germplasm, and here we have the phenotype. So this is um, uh, just variation for kernel color, and this is um, highly correlated with total carotenoids. So on the far left here, we have white maize, whoops, I should point the right way, so we have white maize, and this is yellow, and over here we have orange. So the transition from yellow to white. Or actually, I should say, from white to yellow is basically one gene called Y1. But the transition from yellow to orange is mostly explained by five common loci, and this is um, something that we've recently have tested in um, ten families of the maize Nam population. And I, I will be talking at length on the maize Nam population as I go forward. So, how do we connect genotype to phenotype in, in maize? So, how have we been? doing this for the past five years with uh, the maize NAM populations. So first and foremost, going from the phenotype to the genotype, we want to think of a linkage analysis. So this is just in like a simple family structure. Say we have P1 and P2, and we have crossed them. Just say we have one generation of recombination, and we're now uh, QTL mapping in the F2 population. One one thing to point out here is because there hasn't been very much recombination in this uh, family history, that we're going to have large recombination blocks. So that gives us low resolution. So less markers are needed to capture the recent recombination, but this is at the expense of lower resolution. And now uh, this is probably a common term that we have all heard of. Um, It's transferring uh, an approach called genome-wide association studies from humans to, to maize. And now it's filtered down to every other crop. And this is, in a sense, you can think of this in Mapping complex traits in a population that you created from, say, some of these valuable germ germplasm lines, which would, which were talked about previously for for wheat. So we can um, take ad- advantage of a lot of the ancient recombination that has happened through the history of creating these these populations. So this uh, affords a th- affords us high resolution mapping. So in uh, a crop like maize. Uh, LD, so the non-random correlation of alleles from two loci, uh, decays very rapidly uh, across the genome. On average, it breaks down to about 2 KB across the maize genome. So this gives us great re- uh, resolution for mapping complex traits. Um, the trade-off though is even though we have high resolution, we need millions of markers for GWAS and diverse maize. So. That's that's just one trade off. And you can kind of view this now as going from genotype to the phenotype. So, how are we going to integrate family mapping in GWAS into a platform that's powerful um, and can be used as a community resource? And this is where the, the maize NAM population comes into play. And I'm sure most of you in this room have heard of the name of the maize NAM population. So it's taking 25 diverse lines, which capture about 80% of the common SNP variation in the maize germplasm pool. So some of the great uh, maize breeders at North Carolina State University uh, created a highly diverse global panel of 300 maize inbred lines. And through genotyping, they chose about uh, 25 diverse lines that captured you know, some of that common variation. Now, one, one thing to point out. The maize NAM population is not capturing all of the genetic diversity in the maize germplasm pool. There are a lot of other breeding pools out there, breeding populations out there, and a lot of other rare uh, alleles, if you will, that, that are not being captured. So that's, that's just a very small caveat here. So they were all crossed to B73 and a common reference design. And uh, we already had somewhat of a history from from Jody about the creation of B73 out of Iowa State. And that was uh, chosen because it has had such a tremendous impact on um, both private and public maize breeding populations. So it it is found in a large proportion of the pedigrees of uh, common and elite uh, inbred lines. And also... um, probably greater than half of the parents that were used to create the maize nam population were tropical. So there's a big issue with the confounding of flowering time. So by crossing to a a temperate line that uh, we were able to create these recombinant inbred line families that could then be grown elsewhere such as like Cornell and North Carolina and all across the Midwest as well. And this is what we call the NAM population. So, this is referred to as nested association mapping. And here we have the common parent B73. And there are 200 recombinant inbred lines per family. Oh, so, for the 25 families, that uh, totals 5,000 recombinant inbred lines. So, all of you graduate students thinking out there, if you're com- complaining about having a population size of maybe 300 recombinant inbred lines, not, now you kind of know our pain for the Past five years of having a population size of five thousand recombinant inbred lines, but it's, it's a great resource nonetheless. So, how are we genotyping NAM? So, one one really cool aspect here with NAM is we use a common B seventy three parent for all the crosses. Okay, so that means we can genotype these rare SNPs so that they will be polymorphic in all of the twenty five uh, families. Okay, so that that allows us to, in, in a sense, like QTL map using the recent recombination that that was, in a sense, generated by creating the um, 25 NAM families. But the the real power of NAM and being able to use the ancient recombination requires next generation sequencing of the parents. Okay, so by doing next generation sequencing of the parents, we we can then project the haplotype on onto the 5,000 recombinant inbred line pro- progeny because, so, so you're probably asking how how can we do this? So with these common SNPs, and there's about 12, 1,200 common SNPs that, that were mapped in the uh, 25 recombinant inbred line families, that uh, allows us to track the chromosomal segments from each of the parents, okay? and And then... Um, after we do next generation sequencing, we can, in a sense, like overlay or some of the terminology we use is to pro project that information from the founders, the 27 parents, on onto the 5,000 recombinant inbred rills. So that's 183 fold cost savings in in genotyping. So just to um, capture uh, to con- construct an AM map, thousands of markers were scored with a SNP chip. And for GWAS, we need millions of markers scored on parents by next-generation sequencing. So that's, in a sense, to, to really utilize that ancient recombination that has happened in, in the history of the population. So how how did we do this? That's that's what um, kind of this part of, of the talk is. So one one thing to kind of give you uh, a view viewpoint of this. When I I began my PhD in 2004, we began. Sequencing like single candidate genes. But towards the end of my PhD and um, close to 2009, we began able to do whole genome resequencing with some of these next generation platforms. So, in, in that short amount of time, we were able to jump from just like a candidate gene approach to the whole genome. So, that, that totally changed how, how we approached our, our science. So um, here we we use an uh, approach that basically just targeted the low copy fraction of the maize genome because the maize genome is highly repetitive. So it's about maybe eighty to eighty five percent highly repetitive. But at the time we we couldn't just do just whole genome sequencing of like all these twenty seven parents. So what we did is use an enzymatic approach to, to just cleave preferentially into low copy fractions of the maize genome. And then we took these libraries, if, if you will, and then that's, that's the target that we used to call SNPs. So with this next generation sequencing platform, we were able to call 3.3 million SNPs and um, As As we all know, Maize is an ancient uh, paleopolyploid. It was once a tetraploid. So 1.4 million mapped to a single locus. So by using a Fisher's egg exact test, we were able to kind of tease apart which SNPs were uh, the result of um, pyrology and which SNPs were actually real. In a sense, they mapped to a single position in the maize genome. And only the 1.4 million single locus SNPs we were, were used to um, calculate what I'm about to show you now, and and an error rate for the 1.4 million SNPs was uh, very low, about one in 2,500 base pairs, and about half of those are resulting for paralogy issues. So, for for us us to get down to like a set of SNPs that were you know very clean and all like true positives. We we had to use machine learning approaches to, um, in a sense, pre- precisely call these SNPs. But when we were actually doing that, what what we found out is we were throwing out a lot of of the rare SNPs just so we could get a set of of ones that were real. So this is um, a, a comparison to, from Selexa to Sanger sequencing here, and so this would be like with a candidate gene approach, and as you see here, most of the, the SNPs are rare alleles. But with, with our um, next generation C sequencing platform and pipeline, we're th- we're <coughs> excuse me, we're throwing out a lot of of these rare SNPs. So one and, and important caveat here is that um, it's very important to improve calling for trying to actually test these rare SNPs for, for complex traits. One, um, I would say this is maybe one of the more unusual findings that we found with this uh, HATMAP project, that an additional low copy sequence not found in a reference B73 genome. So on average, other line has an additional 7.8% not found in B73. And this would be in a sense like our positive control. These are B73s reads that are not found in the draft or are the result of sequencing errors. So what we can kind of draw for this, if the unshared fraction follows the neutral SNP distribution, B73 and other and may only capture approximately 70% of the low copy sequence across these 27 lines. So what that means then is, OK, we have one single reference genome sequence for B73. That, that now argues for we, us needing more, because there's a large um, amount of like the low copy fraction, which in, includes genes that are, are, are not present in this one line that, that was chosen for the genome project. So the question is, what are all these genes? And what is their contribution to quantitative trait variation? And that's some of the questions that we're now asking in our research. So now we can think about uh, recombination rates, and this kind of like ties in with, with uh Jody's presentation. So this is a row. So this is like the historical or ancient recombination in, inferred from all of the SNPs. And as you see here, recombination rate increases from the centromere towards the telomere. Here is the centromere, and you can see it increasing towards the telomere. So in this region there's, there appears to be recombination suppression, but as you get closer to the like chromosome arms and cro- closer to the telomeres, recombination rate is actually in, increasing uh, across the genome. And one one key to, to point out is this is the ancient recombination rate that has happened in the history of the population. So. By comparing the 90th versus the 10th percentiles, this varied about 12-fold for rho. For so we also wanted to compare rho, which is, like as I said, the ancient recombination to the recent recombination rate that has happened in the NAM population. So what we found is an R-square of 0.56. So coming out of Brandon Galt's uh, work, where he's done some uh, um, He's basically been able to do um, testing of gen- genomic SNPs to to tell that these SNPs could be millions of years old. So what this means is that these recombination patterns tend to be stable over time. And if if the age of these SNPs are actually very very old, then these patterns are highly con- conserved through like the whole population history of of maize. So the the patterns of recombination that we're seeing now are kind of like the same patterns of recombination that have been happening like 10,000 years ago or, or possibly even older than than that excuse me so when we look at nam recombination so this is the recent recombination and we're checking out each chromosome, it becomes very dramatic then. So the 90th versus versus 10th percentile vary 28-fold for for the recent recombination. And if you look at the centromeric regions, which are right here, there's not very much recombination going on at all. And almost the majority of the recombination is happening in, in the actual arms. Closer and closer to telomeres. So more than 95% of the recent recombination is restricted to slightly more than half of the genome. So there is like a whole other half of the genome that's only experiencing 5% of the recombination in the maize genome. So then the question that you should be asking yourself, how do you use this information and apply it to maize breeding programs now? So this is an, just an example of maize chromosome one. If you look at the pericentromeric region, you can see a large um, region where it's completely recombinationally suppressed. And just to try to get an idea of how large these regions are, so all chromosomes, all ten maize chromosomes. Had a paracentromeric region of 60 to 113 million base pairs. So, like when you think about 130 million base pairs, that's almost the size of an Arabidopsis genome. So, this is tremendous, like regions of the maize genome where there's no recombination happening at all. What we also found kind of shocking is these highly recombinationally suppressed regions contain 20% of the total genic fraction. Okay, so there's a lot of diversity in these paracentromeric regions of the genome, but they're just not recombining very well. So the two main correlated drivers of NAM recombination are, as you would um, expect, the location on the chromosome. Okay, as you get closer to the telomere, recombination is increasing. As you get further away from the telomere, recombination is decreasing. And the repeat content also has a big impact on um, recombination rate as well. Meaning the the higher uh, amount of repetitive DNA, the the lower amount of recombination in in that region of the maize genome. And uh, so to even take this much further, we can compare it to pi. So we we had, Kind of looked at pi in like my very first slide, which varied from one to one point four percent in maize. So the genome has many putative large selective sweeps based on reduced pi. Okay, so these are basically regions of the maize genome where there's a low amount of genetic diversity. So the question is why? So on, on average, pi was 0.66 percent. And the reason why that isn't uh, closer to like 1% or 1.4%, if you recall, because we're trying to use all high quality SNPs when we're using our machine learning approaches to call SNPs, we're losing rare SNPs and that's, that's what's actually driving down pi. So just, just to try, try to give you an idea, what do I mean by a selective sweep? So this is, in a sense, a reduction of diversity from either artificial or natural selection. But as, as you see here, and it actually lines up really well, there's a strong relationship between diversity and recombination. And, and this recombination, just as a reminder, is rho. So this is like the ancient recombination. And you can see the, the peaks and valleys actually line up very well. So the correlation between um, rho and pi is possibly driven by selection and hitchhiking. And it had an R square of 0.33, but what we, we can clearly draw from this is that regions of low recombination retain, retain low diversity. So. Um, we could also compare the correlation between the NAM recombination rate, which is the recent recombination rate, and and pi. Oops, sorry, got ahead of myself. And that has an R square of 0.37. So we wanted to see, okay, what is the the driver of these patterns in the maize genome for for pi? So we then. Found out that you know okay pi was correlated with both the recent recombination R and Rho, the ancient recombination, but then it was nearly independent of divergence from sorghum. So this then indicates that regions of reduced pi have been targets of s- selective sweeps. So of 148 intervals showing less diversity than the maize domestication gene TB1 at uh, 0.18%, um, so not All the reduction were near the paracentromeric regions of the maize genome. In fact, of these 148 selective sweeps, 37 were in high recombination regions and 111 were in low recombination regions. But are these truly selective sweeps? So one, one caveat here is that these selective sweeps may not be associated with domestication but selection in the ancestor of maize teosinte. So these are just these long-term or very old patterns that we're now seeing in present-day maize. And these sweeps, as as we heard from um, the the previous talk, could be caused by by drift as as well. But one one thing that's really important here is the investigation of the function and the adaptive importance of these regions will be very important in future maize research. Um, and I, I think what um, Jody kind of touched on in, in his talk, and it's, it's very, um, I think, an Im, Im, important point when you think of breeding and the maize genome now, is that breeding, i.e. selection, has had to work against very strong recombinational suppression in the maize genome. So this is um, my, my segue now. OK, so that was kind of the the maize hat map vignette. And now what we want to now do is actually use all of these SNPs, not just to like, characterize the genome patterns of maize at the level of a population. But we now want to use these SNPs to find genes that are con- controlling complex traits. So one of the complex traits that I'm very interested in is carotenoid, which is vitamin A. And these uh, are, are the uh, 25 maize uh, founder lines and you can see that they vary for kernel color which by that you can Im- imply that they also vary for total carotenoid content and other um, of the composition of total carotenoids. So using the HapMap1 uh, for vitamin A grain content, some maize accounts for 15 to 56 percent of the total daily calories in certain Africa and Latin American countries, and it is estimated that 250 to 500,000 children afflicted with vitamin A deficiency become blind each year, with about half of them passing away within one year of becoming blind. So this, this is a very serious issue worldwide, and our favorite carotenoid beta carotene is converted to vitamin A in the human body. But one of the challenges here is a very small percentage of varieties have naturally high carotenoid levels. And some African lines have as low as 0.1 beta carotene, but we're, we're targeting 15 for, for our breeding efforts. And this is in, in uh, parallel with Harvest Plus as well. So, just kind of a proof of concept here. So, um, we, we have now begun mapping uh, actually both carotenoid and tocopherol traits, uh, tocopherols being vitamin E in, in the maize NAM population. So, um, in this past year, um, there's been one grow out of the NAM population that we've run almost 8,000 HPLCs on. And I can tell you that is not high throughput, <laughs> OK? It's very laborious work, but it has to be done, OK? So, um, so what we're seeing here is, is some, some plots. And I'll, I'll kind of bring in the, the pathway now. So here, this, uh, and this uh, e- example was actually shown in uh, a previous talk. So here we have Lycae, which is lycopene epsilon cyclase. So what this gene is, it functions at, at a branch point here. And this, this work was published in Harge et al. in 2008 Science. There's um, uh, four different haplotypes of this gene here. So if it has a, a weak allele, what happens then, most of the lycopene goes down this side of, of the pathway here. Okay. So in a sense, it's like changing the flux from this side of the pathway over to the right. Why is that important? Because this side has beta-carotene, which has the highest amount of pro-vitamin A activity in the human body. So we want to increase, uh, for the most part, the amount of beta-carotene in the maize grain. And what, what we've shown here in, in the maize NAM population, so first we mapped QTL. Um, with the t- approximately 1,200 common SNP markers and then we used the GWAS uh, approach and since using all the ancient recombination with, with the HapMap SNPs. And as you see here, we clearly hit that gene. So this, this SNP is right in that gene. So this is great confirmation of all that hard work of running all those HPLCs. We actually find the gene that we should for this trait. Um, one one other thing that I would like to point out is uh, this one hit up here on chromosome seven. This is a a gene, but it's actually what we're referring to as an unknown gene, meaning that it's outside of the, outside of the biosynthetic pathway. So, by using this NAM approach, we're able to find new genes that are outside of of the commonant pathway because this approach here was taken with a candidate gene up approach. So if it's a candidate approach, then you only know what you know from the pathway, okay? But with this approach here, we're now learning what is the true genetic architecture of traits such as like carotenoids and tocopherols. And now we're, we're trying to tie that in into breeding programs um, and into, uh, with Harvest Plus into the third world. So now we're going to change gears. I'll put on my, my cotton hat now. So since, since I showed uh, an example of maize, all its phenotypic variation, I can now show an example of cotton with some of its trichome variation. And it's, it's actually been um, a really, a I should say, a, a really challenging uh, change from maize to, to cotton because maize I consider something that can be phenotyped very easily. Where cotton not so much is basically a perennial tree species treated as an annual, and it has a lot of challenges you know, such as when you're counting nodes you're like, what is the main branch I should be looking for so there's there's a lot of challenges, but it's it's been fun nonetheless so now I'm going to kind of concentrate on high throughput phenotyping so, Why is this important? So there's a challenge to increase cotton yields in the face of climate change and diminishing water resources. Um, I, I think most people in this room would agree that the genetic improvement via modern plant breeding is the most sustainable and economic approach to meet this challenge. And that the development of superior heat and drought tolerant cultivars has been slow. And I will actually replace that word with painful. So this breeding process could be improved quite rapidly with new ways to conduct uh, phenotype to genotype. So after me, there's going to be some great scientists talking about GS. So that, that's one one great way. But this uh, approach is just going to be concentrating on the phenotyping. And at, as you heard earlier, precision phenotyping is very key when we're thinking about highly polygenic traits. So why, whoops. So, Um, High throughput phenotyping. So this is our sensors and our platform and vehicle. So right now we're able to do um, infrared. Okay, so let me just kind of position you here. So we have infrared thermometers, which allows us to do canopy temperatures. Infrared thermometers are positioned right here. Uh, Ultrasonic transducers, which allows us to do plant height. And those are positioned right here. And this is a crop circle. So, this is a crop canopy sensor and uh, detects in three band waves lengths. And that allows us to, to do vegetation indices. And we also have a GPS RTK antenna up here. And this is a GPS RTK receiver and radio right here. So, this is our high clearance tractor that we call it. It has an average speed of 2.82 kilometers per hour. Right, right now, we're um, doing it at one hertz, but we're actually going to crank that up this year to, to 20 hertz. So we can get a massive amount of phenotypic data. And this is how we, we log everything here with these Campbell data loggers. So this is kind of, in a sense, like a test case. Will this actually work? So here we have here is my, my cotton field, um, so I, I have like a Helicopter that takes uh, a photo of my field every two weeks, and this is one. Um, this one was taken in August. So one great thing about Central Arizona: clear skies, hardly ever rains, but it's always hot. So it's a great place to do drought and, and heat testing in the U.S. And uh, just as um, in uh, population, so basically, when I was hired there, I went to my seed room, and I'm like, okay, what do I have in my seed room? Okay, I found a recombinant inbred line population that had a lot of seed, so that was going to be my actual test population that I was going to evaluate with high throughput phenotyping approaches. So my treatment here is 100% ET replacement, which is wet, and then half ET replacement, which is my, my dry treatment. And as you may expect in Arizona, everything has to be irrigated. And here we're growing it on on drip irrigation. And what we have here is a a heat map of the field which we generated from the tractor IRTs. Down here, this is the the dry rep one, wet rep one, dry rep two, and wet rep two. So the the greener it is, the hotter it is, and the bluer it is, the cooler it is. One thing I would want to point out is, I ran an EM38 across the field to look at the electrical conductivity of the soil. And I found this region of the field had higher clay content. Okay, So that means when I'm calculating blups, I need to use row and column and take that EM38 information into account. So when you're doing drought testing, you really need to not only know how you're going to manage your crops, but you need to know your soil profile as well. Because that can create tremendous headaches down the road. So just kind of proof of concept here, um, we saw great time-by-treatment interaction for canopy temperature as we would think. And this is just uh, blups and this is like averages at 7 a.m. here, 10 a.m. here, and 1 p.m. here. And this is the ambient air temperature. Yes, you see it gets very hot in Arizona. Um, and as you see here, the, the dry is con- continually in- increasing, and this is at 1, 1 p.m. So having a, a, a tractor is really great because um, we can have someone just drive through the field at like 7 in the morning, 10 in the morning, and, and at 1 p.m. So for, for this field test, it, it took about one, one hour for each like, run um, when, when the driver is driving through the field. And that, as I said, this basically confirms tractor-mounted IRTs can detect temporal changes in canopy temperature. Um, the treatment effect is strongest in the early a- afternoon. Uh, one thing I would like to try this year is driving uh, around the clock, but I haven't been able to find a, a driver that would want to do that. So, if there's anyone in the audience that would be up for driving 24/7, just you know, maybe two or three days straight, call me. All right. So um, this uh, is kind of like the, the captured phenotypic variation for canopy temperature in the recombinant inbred line population here. And this is one parent, TM1, and other parent, NM24S16. And, and they hold the, the same rank compared to the wet and compared to the, the dry population here. And this is at 1 p.m. and this was in, in August. So is actually heritable, which was a great relief for me. It isn't great, or I should say it isn't as high as I would hope it to be, but it's at least something that could be used. So it had a, so the, the wet was 0.52 and uh, the dry was 0.58. And there was two two reps for each treatment, just as a reminder. So how, how repeatable is this? So on the x-axis here we have day 224, so this is like 1 p.m. dry minus 1 p.m. wet versus day 217, 1 p.m. dry minus 1 p.m. wet. And it seems to be fairly repeatable. Obviously, I was hoping that would be higher. But what we can kind of say is that, yes, if you're doing tests for heat and drought in Arizona, it's almost the same every day. So we can get a very consistent phenotypic response to uh, heat and drought stress. And about half of the rills had a change below 5.4 degrees Celsius. So now we're going to talk about NDVI. And just to give a background on what NDVI is, this uh, near infrared minus red the, divided by NIR plus red. And these are the wavelengths here of the NIR and red that, that we're targeting. One, one really cool thing with this cotton population, as it gets more stressed, and you can kind of call this uh, the droopy index, is the, the leaves in, in the afternoon begin to wilt. So what's happening as those leaves wilt, more soil is being ex- exposed through the canopy. Okay, so what then? That allows us to calculate a wilting index, which is basically NDVI PM minus NDVI PM dry. So this is wet, dry, and this is uh, wet right, right here. So as, as in a sense, as the greenness is dropping, for like a certain plot, that means more soil contamination is coming up. And it's being read by the crop circle. So in that case, the plants are very stressed, and the leaves are very droopy, and and they wilt very heavily. And this is just a uh, one plant that's obviously very wilted. So as as we would also hope, we saw a nice uh, time by treatment interaction for NDVI, and um, this is at. 10 a.m., and then you can see the, in a sense, the value of greenness dropping at, at 1 p.m. And it seems to hold pretty constant for, for the wet pro- plots. But what I think is maybe happening here is that there's actually a, a trait in cotton that, you know, it, it can like the leaves like track the sun. So I'm, I'm thinking this may be sun, sun tracking of the plants here, and, and that's what that changes, but I haven't con- confirmed that yet. So tractor-mounted canopy sensors can detect temporal changes in canopy geometry. And the heritability estimates for for this trait were actually higher. So for the wet, it was 0.79. And for the dry, it was 0.59. And this also was um, highly repeatable. Day 224, 1 PM, this index. And day 217, this is 1 PM index. And it seemed to be fairly repeatable. Um, and kind of the same conclusion here. There's like a consistent phenotypic re- response to the drought and the heat stress over the, the growing season. And this is just half the rills. Half the rills have a index below 0.13. So, and then I wanted to kind of see well, if the plants are beginning to wilt more, they'll be hotter. So I wanted to look at the relationship of the change in canopy temperature and the index as the plants wilt. But one, one thing to point out here, though, is as the plants wilt more, more soil is going to be exposed. So that means as the IRTs are driving over top of the plots, there's going to be some more soil con- contamination coming through, and it's hitting the IRTs. So that's going to artificially in- inflate, the, in a sense, the canopy temperature. So that's something that we're trying to work through right now. Um, if there has if there's anyone in the audience that have some ideas on how to work through that, that would be great to talk later. But that's that's kind of where where we are with that. Um, so yeah, so increase in canopy temperature results and plants be begin to wilt more. So kind of the conclusions from this, we were able to develop a field-based high throughput phenotyping approach, rapidly phenotype hundreds to thousands of plots of canopy temperature, and what I uh, kind of refu- refer to as my droopy index, but obviously it's just the rate is when plants wilt. Uh, the canopy temperature and the wilting index are moderately to highly heritable as well as repeatable on a temporal scale. And uh, what we kind of see this, or foresee for this as a tool to map QTL, and what we would like to do in the future is use it to select stress-tolerant lines, but we're not quite quite there yet. And then as, as time goes on, I'm, I'm now kind of tying in yield and fiber quality information as, as well for all of these tested plots. So where are we going for the next five-year cycle with my program? So we, we want to con- continue this HTP platform um, for it to be more precise. And so obviously heat and drought are important areas in, in where we grow cotton in Arizona. And also want to target yield. I have received funding from Cotton Incorporated to create a cotton am population. Yes, I haven't learned my lesson. So, um, but this one's going to be a little smaller. So we're we're thinking maybe three three thousand lines and possibly more parents and like smaller population size. But we'll we'll see how that plays out. Um, And and GS. So since these traits are highly polygenic, I think. being able to combine GBS in in, in cotton, which we've actually uh, have been able to per, perform quite well. Uh, this is in a project with uh, Jesse Poland at uh, Kansas State, and um, we've been able to do GBS in in cotton. So if it works in cotton, it'll work in everything else. Trust me. Um, so as as we move forward, we now are be getting to have like this. GBS platform, if if you will. We're creating more uh, populations to like capture variation and see its Im- importance under heat and drought. And we also want to tie in GS as time goes on. And this is from my, my maize life, uh, all the folks at Cornell, Cold Spring Harbor, Purdue, UC Davis, and Michigan State. And this is from my cotton life, all the people from my lab, University of Arizona, New Mexico State, Lark, where I work, and other. People from satellite sites at the USDA, ARS um, across the US. I thank you for your time. uh one one thing I would like to point out with with this is uh we we tested the contribution of like pi uh uh like um r the, the NAM recombination rate the the gene content all in in that area and we 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 found that recombination rate was the major driver but one 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 key to kind of point out though Is a lot of these factors are highly correlated, so it's very challenging to tease them all apart. Now, on on the issue of not having enough coverage in those regions, um, there there are um, actually um, I don't know the exact quantity of um, genotypes coming from that region, but those that region has been been uh, covered and pretty well uh, characterized. And um, with the HapMap project, I should say, that that region has been pretty well covered. And um, there's now um, HapMap version 2, which was whole genome shotgun of these 27 lines that have also covered that, that region. And that, that trend holds, holds up as, as well. Um, one, one point I would like to also uh, bring up is um, when thinking about um, genotyping and, and breeding and and you have these regions where there's um, heavy recombination suppression. The thing that breeding companies can do very well is genotyping very cheaply, so they can create like massive populations and then just do seed seed shipping to find the rare re recombinants in that region. I don't, I don't did did that answer your your question? Okay. Yes, Jimmy. Yeah, Uh <laughs> That is kind of a loaded question, Jimmy, but um, I will answer it to my best. Obviously, there is a lot of subjectivity and preference that goes into choosing lines by a you know, a, a breeder who's been doing it from for 20 or more years. What I, I see this as is a, a complement to what a breeder is doing out in the field. I, I don't see this as, as a complete re, replacement, no. Mm-mm. Anything else? Oh, yes, Aaron. Uh, um, okay, so what I can say is uh, canopy temperature is very um, important to cotton. Okay, but cotton has like a long growing season. Okay, so to to really get a strong um, well, I should should say to like actually have it like tightly linked to like yield or like fiber quality. You'll you'll have to harvest like certain portions of the plant right over the growing season and then see what you know like the canopy temp was at that time because as the plant is putting on more and more flowers, you know. So that's that's kind of the the challenge there. I mean. If you just take, like, canopy temperature from, like, one fixed point when you're driving through the field in, like, August, it won't always be highly correlated with what you harvest at the end of the year. Because, obviously, with the change in temperature and precip over time, then, you know, there's certain, I'll say, like, portions of the plant that you should, like, harvest, and, and that will be more, like, tightly linked to like canopy temp at a certain time point so to actually kind of like tie that with like end in yield that's that's kind of the, the challenge where we're at right right now for a plant like cotton possibly something like like maize it may be easier but I could be totally wrong Yeah. Wait, you're 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 saying come comparing to to handheld? Oh, okay. So that's that's a great question. So uh okay, I'll 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 yeah, that's I'll that's fine. So this this question is how does like the high throughput tractor platform come compare to like handheld, right? That's a question. Okay, so one one thing with like using say a, a handheld for like chlorophyll content, say say you have like uh, hundred plants in a row which is like what we have for cotton you have to think about the tremendous amount of time it would take for one human being to actually phenotype or you know to like test every plant within that row with the tractor where we're able to do like all the plants in a row but to to go further is we we need to have like a head-to-head com- comparison such as like chlorophyll content from the tractor and chlorophyll content from the, like a handheld, but so that's that's kind of one one thing, I would say, um, is like a real ad, advantage of, of the tractor approach. You're able to like scan all the plants in in a row. And one one thing to point out is, um, so when I'm processing all of this in like ArcGIS, ARC is I'm I'm cutting like the five foot off of each end of the plots and then i'm i'm checking out for outliers as well but it's a lot easier to check for outliers when you have like scanned like every single plant than when you've only done like four plants or two plants in a plot okay So there's this cool instrument called a LIDAR, and um, we're going to begin using that this year to do canopy geometry in, in cotton. So when when you actually look down a Cotton Road, there's a lot of various branching patterns that you can see by eye, but actually to go out there with like a, um, I don't know, with a tape measure, it takes a lot of time to see what all those branch links are, right? So. What we're now doing is um, trying to do canopy geometry. So then we'll we'll have like the plant height and like the the branch angles and like the width of the, the uh, plants as as well. And it's it's kind of cool. It, it kind of it. I, I guess a lack of word for it. And and I think it's a word to kind of use. You kind of create a, like a cloud of it, and you have like all these points. So you, you in a sense can like recreate the shape of the plant. Yeah. Okay, so lunch, um, uh, we should have no shortage of uh, things to talk about.